Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. So today, our guest is Beijing-based Chinese contemporary art expert Philip Tinari. Philip is the director of UCCA Center for Contemporary Art and CEO of the UCCA Group. He holds degrees from Duke and Harvard and has been based in Beijing since 2001. Under his leadership, UCCA has grown extensively from a private local gallery into a multi-location public foundation with over a million visitors a year, both domestic and international. Besides the Beijing 798 headquarter, there are two other locations. One is UCCA. A Dune Art Museum, which is on the beach in Beidaihe, and the Shanghai UCCA Edge just opened last year. And congratulations again, Philip, on that.、Oh, thank you. Now, adding to Philip's art credentials, he founded and edited Leap, the first internationally distributed bilingual magazine of contemporary art in China. He is a contributing editor of Art Form and launched the magazine's Chinese edition in 2008. He was co-curator of the 2017 exhibition Art and China After 1989: A Theater of the World at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And most recently, Philip led a team to curate the inaugural edition of the Daria Binali in Saudi Arabia. So, needless to say, we are deeply honored to have Philip with us today to talk about modern art in China. Thank you, thank you for taking the time, Philip. Oh, my pleasure. That's very kind. I'm going to start because while you were in Saudi Arabia, I was at UCCA in Beijing,、ah. and I went to see Mauricio Catalan. Last judgment, right? And it was amazing. It was so unconventional, and I think both the content. And the format of the exhibit is beautifully done. I was impressed the dancers, the modern dancers. The choreography was beautiful. And then I looked up, I saw all these pigeons perched on the beams in your gallery, right? And not to mention these horses that are hung in the air. So the whole venue and the experience was like a shock. Really, was like quite. Pushed sort of my imagination of shows that I saw in Beijing. So my question will start there. How did you come about that show, and why did you decide to bring it to China? Wow, that's a great question. Maurizio Catalan is for me one of the great artists of the current moment. Even people who don't know contemporary art very well might remember in December two thousand nineteen. He did this crazy thing of duct taping a banana to the wall of a booth at Art Basel Miami Beach, and then it was selling for over a hundred thousand U.S. dollars. And I think, you know, in that gesture, raised a question that a lot of us ask, which is, what makes art valuable, right? Especially even today in the moment of、yeah. NFTs and all these other things. I mean, we've always been wondering. But going back much further,、um, I think about the retrospective he did in, at the Guggenheim in the in the 2010s, where he just simply hung all of his art from the middle of the Oculus, you know. The middle of the Guggenheim Rotunda and left all the ramps empty and said, "This is the end of my career,"、uh, which of course it wasn't. Or we think about the piece he made during the Trump years, where he made a gold toilet entirely out of twenty-four karat gold. <laughs> 
and called it America. And he installed it in one of the bathrooms in the Guggenheim. And, you know, and then when the White House asked to borrow some art, Nancy Spector as the curator then suggested to lend this piece. So um, <laughs> anyway, he's, he's, he's a total prankster, but he's he's got a deeply conceptual undertone. And, you know, he's really since the 1990s been one of the key figures in kind of global contemporary art. And as UCCA, you know, on the one hand, we're always looking to put Chinese contemporary art into global dialogue. But on the other hand, we're also looking to bring what we consider some of the most important positions in global modern and contemporary art to a Chinese audience in a way that that makes sense for our public, um, that they'll find interesting and compelling. And I think this show particularly was a great example of that. It was very strange because I was actually away. It was the first time I missed an opening at UCC because I was, like you said, in Saudi. But to watch from afar and to see the show take off and become really a hit with a, with a very young audience, actually, and an audience you know that was like many audiences today around the world, very motivated by taking photos and posting them on social media and kind of, you know, structuring these experiences and talking about them to their friends. It was it was a runaway hit for us. And I, I think, you know, on the one hand, it's easy to see it as this superficial, you know, social media phenomenon. But on the other hand, so much of the work in that show is talking about life and death and belief and value and humor and all kinds of other themes. So I I always like that element where you are actually providing something that's quite profound, but maybe that at first glance doesn't really look like it. How did you compare it to the other shows? You said, you know, this runaway success. What were the sort of examples? Social media posting, lots of it by visitorship to the show? All of the above. I mean, yeah, of course, our main metric is just the number of visitors. And, you know, we'd actually weirdly always had this idea that in Beijing, especially after about November, it's hard to do a, a show with a lot of visitors because, you know, the winter comes and people don't like to go out in the cold. But this show ran right through the coldest months of the year. And we, we I think in the end, we had around 120,000 ticketed visitors, which for a show like that is a, is a great deal. Wow. And then, yeah, all kinds of other media attention and, and social media exposure. Sure, all those metrics were, were very high. The special thing about this show is that it was just so direct, you know, really, you didn't have very much there besides the artworks themselves. And the artworks were there in a very open configuration. So you could walk into the space and you could see things, you know, we, we, we live in this 1800 square meter, it's almost like an airplane hangar, it's a former factory. Mm. And so you had sight lines all the way across the space where a lot of times when we make a big show in that space, we build walls or we build little rooms or we sort of divide it in different ways. So I, I thought that was also something special about the show. It was just that, you know, you could have 700 people in there at the same time, which of course in the age of COVID is also amazing. You know, everyone masked, of course, and at a time when the pandemic was very well under control in Beijing. But yeah, I mean, just this kind of the spectacle of, of, of the art, but then the viewing of the art was really quite interesting. Yes, yes, indeed. And I have to tell you, when I was there, the room, this airplane hangar was full of people. It was so full. I was also watching the audience as yeah. part of the experience. It's always just one thing about making exhibitions that's so special is you're creating the space that people can go into and have an experience of and that they have an experience of together, right? So you're going to remember that moment yes. of being... In this audience, you're going to remember what people were wearing, how they were behaving, and it, it kind of becomes a part of your memory of that, that historical moment. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Now, just looking back on my various experiences, last time I was there was the gentleman Chu Zhijie's map, which was sort of like, on a glance, you kind of feel like it's a little bit like a Chinese traditional painting, but it's not exactly when you look in detail. 
it was all these jokes on various sort of timelines of development or things. And so that brings me to a question of what sort of defines Chinese modern art, because somehow the soil these Chinese artists sort of Chinese art grew out of is different from the rest of the world. And we had such a long thousands of years of tradition of these very ancient ink brush kind of art. What what makes Chinese modern art particularly Chinese or how different are they from art from other parts of the world? I mean, it's a story of kind of clashing and intertwining timelines because on the one hand, sure, you have this grand sweep of Chinese culture and civilization um, but then you have China in the 20th century, right? And, and you know, the urge to modernize around the May 4th movement and then, you know, the decades under Mao where things were much more closed to the world. And then this kind of dialectic or story of, of contemporary Chinese art that we tend to talk about, I think really begins with opening and reform in the late 70s. Um, and you have a flowering in the 80s as experiments happen, as schools open and provide these climates for all kinds of experimentation. In the 90s, you have a, another sort of push as reform deepens and markets kind of expand and cities grow and and society sort of loosens in some ways. You know, the, the old kind of ways of finding jobs and being kept to one place change. And so artists tend to start to congregate in, in different cities. And then after the 2000s, you know, Chinese art becomes part of this global market, you know, in the lead up to Beijing 2008 or after WTO and then into the, you know, and then in the 2010s, it really finds its own feet. And you have this very established domestic system with galleries and media and critics and institutions and collectors that's really no longer dependent on, you know, the outside world for validation. So that's the, that's the broad sweep um, in a few sentences. But I think what's really interesting is to look, think about it in the context of, of global contemporary art. There's been a lot of work done in the last 10 years looking at sort of what happens in the world after World War II, right? Like that that's really a kind of transitional yeah. moment when, you know, some of the European avant-garde makes its way to the United States. And then when, you know, because of new technologies of jet travel and transmission of images and, and information, you start to have, you know, movements happening in different countries. Like if you look at the J Japanese modern art scene, you know, that explodes in the 60s as Japan is reconstructing, you know, and China doesn't really enter the story until a few decades later, just because of its its national situation at the time. And it does so relatively tentatively and kind of and still with a lot of distance from the global conversation because of language, because of culture, because of travel restrictions and such, and, you know, in the 80s particularly. And, you know, you feel into the 2000s, which is the time when I kind of came into the scene, like things are really heading for this great convergence. And you would have Chinese artists kind of very much in this kind of global discourse. And that that has happened in some ways. And we do have, I mean, think artists like Telfei, who we did a big show with last year, or, 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 or many others. I mean, even Cho Jie, who you mentioned, but he's, he's an interesting example, because there was an artist you know, it was really a hero of a generation of artists in the 90s in China. Um, he very well could have moved abroad and become, you know, some, like Tsai Guoqiang or like, you know, Xu Bing or something and become a big kind of international figure. And instead, weirdly, what he decided to do was to, to turn, turn back to China. And, you know, now he's an artist, but he's also one of the top two or three administrators at the Central Academy of Fine Arts. So he's become, you know, really part of the system that I think in the beginning he was very much 
resisting and protesting and kind of, you know, staking himself outside of. So it's, it's, it's interesting to watch these different artists and their journeys um, and the different generations as well, because they all have, you know, very different life experiences, which leads to very different ways of making art. That, that is a very interesting example, because that is drastically different from, say, Xubing, or actually, uh, the other day, I was just reading about Ai Weiwei's memoir. How would you describe like how they react to the traditional art form, though? Yeah, I mean, well, you, you just mentioned Ai Weiwei, who's, of course, a special case because of, you know, his, his stance, and this has meant that he lives outside of China and such. But I think if you look at what he started to do in the 90s, it's a template that a lot of others have have used, which, I mean, he had this idea of the cultural ready-made, right? You know, the ready-made comes to us from Duchamp, right? Who turned bicycle wheels and bottle racks and kind of the everyday objects of, you know, early 20th century French and American society into his, into the stuff of his art. And artists like Ai Weiwei from the 90s started to do that with things like blue and white porcelain or, you know, Ming furniture or, you know, these other aesthetic elements that come from Chinese history. In lesser hands, that becomes... It can veer into what we sometimes jokingly call, you know, Mao with a Coke can art, you know, which is this like this very uh, direct juxtaposition <laughs> of East and West or capitalism and communism. But there's room for play and, and you know, these kind of uh, essentially surrealist juxtapositions, which is, you know, which is what underlies pop in a global sense, right? The idea that you would look at a soup can and think of it as as something with aesthetic potential is based on this kind of other way of, of regarding something, right? That comes from a place of wonder and confusion. So I think, you know, I think there've been a lot of artists in China who've, who've looked to the material traditions, intellectual traditions, you know, of Chinese history for inspiration. But I think it's also, it's also true that, you know, especially as you get into these younger generations, you, you find people, their cultural diet has been much more global or much more just recent and and for for whom those kinds of things maybe aren't as inspiring and instead they're you know they're looking to anime or they're looking to i don't know just other elements in kind of contemporary urban life for inspiration so i i think you know i think chinese artists fought hard to create a space where they could make art that wasn't only about china right that they had the the authority and the freedom and the you know sort of position to to make abstract paintings if they wanted to or you know to engage in conceptual projects that that had bigger stakes you know that were about how we look at the world or how we experience selfhood rather than you know how we understand ourselves as national subjects or citizens yeah if i may speaking from just an audience perspective I think what you just described for a long time in the 80s and 90s, sort of Chinese artists got to paint the peacock that looked like peacock. And uh, the, the ink brush painting of the Yellow Mountains is more, you know, the more vividly look alike, uh, the original subject, sort of the higher art. And then after a while, there was this all art is portraying China in a way, sculpture of the squatting rickshaw man or laborer in the courtyard of the temple restaurant. Sort of objects are using different mediums, but still depicting China, the life in China. And then right now, when you look at Chinese art, very often it's, like you said, sort of using different mediums, even though I am a Chinese person, but I 
express opinions about humanity in general, sort of、right. themes that challenge us all. Very interesting. What What do you think、um, gave sort of birth to this this progression? Is it more international travel, more、uh, economic freedom,、uh, that they don't have to create things catering to the international market at all anymore, or what? what What、uh, what caused this shift? Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of the all of the above. I think especially, it's actually funny. I'm in Guangzhou today because I'm about to go to the He Museum, He Museum. It is in Shunde. It's opened by the family that own Media. You know, Media, one of China's big air conditioner brands. It's this beautiful building designed by you know the Japanese architect Tadao Ando, and they actually have an exhibition right now, which is called. On off 2021. It's actually inspired by, or it's an update to one of the first exhibitions I did at UCCA, which was called On Off,、uh, which was in 2013. And in that exhibition, we were trying to map this generation of artists, basically of my generation.、Uh, you know, I'm born 1979, so these were artists born, let's say, like late 70s, early 80s. And the, the name On Off actually it comes from the The interface of what was then and it kind of remains actually one of the most popular VPNs. I don't know if you, I don't know which VPN you use, but there's one called Astral,、um, and the the、yes. interface for the VPN is just a simple switch that says on off. You know, it's just a binary choice. And for the curators, these two two Chinese guys, Sun Dong Dong and Bao Dong, that was a way of talking about the state of this generation. So like they were constantly toggling between, you know. Chinese and international, or between、uh, academic and commercial, or between you know even between things like their parents' expectations and their own dreams, and so on, right? I mean, this '80s generation, I think, in so many ways, is a bit like the baby boomers in America, right? It's a generation that really grew up in a climate of you know expanding wealth and opportunity and openness. But I think that you know, even through all of all of that, they always understood the limitations of of the system here, and that, and maybe there's a very easy way around them. You know, VPN is kind of like as Eileen Gu said on her Instagram,、um, you know, during the Olympics, like can be downloaded for free, you know, on the App Store, maybe not in China,、um, but you know, you can toggle kind of in and out of the, these expectations. But when you're in one state, it's it's somehow or another absolute, and that toggling, of course, has gotten much harder. Now that we can't travel anymore and such, but、um, yeah. but I do think that there's there is a generation and, and and generations after that that kind of came of age、uh, with this you know openness and with this ability to explore, and then also with that、uh, with the confidence、um, and it's it's really in the end it's kind of like a cultural confidence right as opposed to the artists in the '90s who were making art. Either for kind of overseas markets, you know, often through Hong Kong or directly to other places in Europe and America, or also academically, you know, the validation that they were getting because the Chinese system wasn't entirely ready to accept these more experimental practices. So the more daring conceptual、right. contemporary artists, you know, they kind of measured their their worth and their achievements based on being invited to participate in exhibitions that were happening. In Venice, or in Kassel, Germany, or you know, in New York, or wherever it was. So you had for this moment this very, I mean, almost neo-colonial system where you had these you know overseas actors with immense power over the kind of prospects、yeah. of these Chinese artists, and that's that's completely over. And thankfully, 
but you know, in in a way, you worry that we threw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And that, like, when you're no longer aiming for a kind of international dialogue, it has a way of not happening, and especially post COVID. Mm -hmm. But and I, I guess this comes back to like who we are at UCCA. I mean, I I think you have to fight really hard, you know, whether it's when you do a show with a Chinese artist to make sure that it makes a splash, you know, globally these days, mostly just through media and through, you know, other kinds of programming that you do to amplify it. Or when you're bringing art in, I hate to think that the, the artistic, you know, horizons of a younger generation now are, are, are more limited than they were five years ago when everyone could, could go to Paris or, or not everyone, obviously, but, you know, lots of people could, could travel around and go to Tokyo and I know CX, see exhibitions and understand art from, from other places as well. So it's, I think there's even more of a burden on us now to keep doing great programming that kind of puts, you know, China in, in dialogue with the wider world. And I, I think you're doing a great service, particularly right now during COVID when the communication between China and the rest of the world is literally sealed by the border. I applaud you for that. Now, I want to probe, I could take this in so many different directions. One of the things you said, uh, the neo-colonial period is um, thankfully like completely over. Then who are they making market for? Is it completely for the domestic market, both in terms of viewing as well as collecting? Is it completely changed? This is also very interesting. I mean, I, I, I think good artists, not even great artists, just good artists don't think about their market when they're in the studio. Right. I mean, so I'll, st I'll start by saying that they're making art, you know, that they, that they feel they need to make because that's artists and that's what they do. And I, I always say like, you know, people who become artists become artists because they can't do anything else. And I don't mean they don't have the ability to do anything else. I mean that they like, they absolutely must be an artist, right. That the vision is, is burning so brightly within them that they would feel like they were betraying themselves if they weren't an artist, right? Uh, it's a slightly romantic view, but it's also, you know, one one must also a little bit fight against, you know, you don't want artists to become just another profession, right? Like the kinds of professions that we're all in. Um, there needs to be something special and something something very powerful underlying that urge. And so I, I really hesitate. I mean, I, I, I like to think I don't work with artists who are thinking so directly about you know the end user of of the art they're making now all of that said we're we're part we're all part of a market right and we're all part of a system um and that system has has evolved drastically uh, in the last you know 10 15 20 years um it's not just that you know in the 90s a lot of chinese art was being consumed outside of china it's that in the 2000s you actually didn't really have international art coming into China yet on the market level. And so you had these, you know, in that period of say 2000 to 2010, these really interesting phenomena of like certain Chinese artists who really weren't that great and really didn't have any global profile, but through kind of what's called manipulation of Chinese markets, be they auctions, or private, you know, private galleries or whatever, were suddenly trading at prices that were, you know, if you put them in a global context, were completely out of sync with like major artists in the West, right? So they were artificially high. And then what happened in the 2010s, a lot of it has to do with the arrival of Art Basel uh, in Hong Kong. Suddenly you had a world-class art fair, you know, on Chinese soil or on, at mainland China's doorstep. 
and you had anyone who was interested in art just needed to go there and interested in buying art and they could suddenly compare you know prices and quality and all this from around the world and i think this was a big big corrective to kind of how the chinese art market had been conducted before because in the previous decade like in that 2000s decade most of the action was kind of in auctions and auctions just have a, a more limited metabolism, right? There's only, you know, a few hundred pieces happening, mm -hmm. trading each twice a year at, at each of the major houses. So it's like, you know, when suddenly the floodgates opened and, and you, you had Chinese collectors starting to buy art from Mexico and from South Africa and from Australia and, and, mm -hmm. and, and still buying art from China, because I mean, almost all Chinese collectors at the end of the day, see themselves as part of you know, this larger story of contemporary art in China, and, and they love, you know, the artists that, that they're surrounded with. But I think it just put it all in a much more healthy kind of global context. Right. And on that line of Chinese collectors, I'm sort of witnessing this sort of popping of sprouting of um, Chinese private collectors, collections, or art galleries, museums all over the country. I'm sure you are sort of seeing this hands-on, tell us what are the majors of destinations, galleries not to miss. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, that's been fascinating. And especially these last few years, I, I did a talk for some curators at MoMA a few months ago, and I was thinking, what should I focus on? You're not in, in an hour, it's hard to, you know, talk about the state of art in China in general. But I think really the the most important trend of the last few years has been the rise of these private institutions um, popping up everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like to think UCC turns 15 this year. Um, in 2007, wow. you know, when a crazy Belgian collector, Guy Ullens, you know, decided to open an, uh, an art museum in this far-flung area of Beijing that was seen as revolutionary. But of course, you know, as time goes on, that becomes something that is becomes thinkable to lots of other people. So the place I just mentioned in Shunda, I mean, built at an extremely high standard. But you also have, I mean, last year in in Shandong, there were two places, one, one in Rizhao, opened by, you know, the, the son of a local tycoon, let's say, who's just in his 20s, but has put together this massive collection very quickly. It's called the Xiao Museum. Or in, in Qingdao, uh, it's, it has more of a sort of state-owned enterprise background, but there's this amazing museum designed by Jean Nouvel that looks out over the sea. But also on the, on the state front, I mean, I think there's been some really interesting developments as well. Like if we look at, you know, in 2000 and, 2019, you know, the, the Pompidou uh, outpost at the West Bund in Shanghai, and then just followed, you know, two years later by the mm -hmm. Pudong Art Museum that just opened last summer. Again, world-class Jean Nouvel building with all kinds of behind-the-scenes collaborations with Tate, and and they've done some some really massive shows already. And, and I, I think you're you know you're seeing efforts at different scales and, and levels happening in, in cities around China. And I mean, we're we're trying to be part of that as well. I mean, we're actively exploring, you know, outposts in, in different cities. I think that the real story is just that you know why this is all possible. It's not just that there are are wealthy people who want to flaunt their belongings. It's that there's actually audiences who find this kind of, let's call it cultural consumption, you know, interesting and compelling. So you have people wanting to visit these museums. I remember when I visited the, the place I'm going later today in Shunda back in September, 
here you are in Foshan, you know, I, I mean, Shunda is a great city for, I'm sure you've been there for food, right? It's not necessarily a place you think of as like a cultural destination. And you walk in and it's full of, you know, again, mainly young people from the surrounding area, you know, have come to, to see this exhibition and of course to take their photos. It's, it's quite, you know, affirming in a way. That's great. What does it look like? This one in Shunda? I, I, I need to go. How big is it? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's about four or five stories. It's, it's circular. So, you know, anytime someone builds a circular museum, their comparisons to the Guggenheim are inevitable. Um, I think the, the cladding is like sort of almost not quite bamboo strips, but they're these, you know, sort of tubular things. It's, it's quite, you know, it's very beautifully massed. It's kind of like a series of circles sort of sitting on top of each other, sort of beautiful water and landscaping. Uh, the bottom but that was a very smooth you know guest experience i mean of course the other one we should mention and which is the most important of all but unfortunately we can't go there at the moment is m plus in hong kong you know which is like that's really the museum you know the modern art museum for for asia generally let's say i mean that's been in the works for nearly 20 years and has a massive collection and a world-class you know research and curatorial operation and on this private institution front there was this phenomenon that i was seeing almost in taking inspiration from, let's say, Naoshima in Japan or mm. Mahafa. Yes, Mahafa, Texas, sort of a very small, remote, almost rural location where someone with inspiration in China, it could be the government that brings in architectural sort of wonders scattered in the, the rice paddy fields and create amazing modern art. And somehow using this approach to activate a rural area that was falling asleep almost. I, I think I, I see your Beidaihe project in some ways a little bit along yeah. that. And Zhejiang Songyang, which where I'm involved, we built a wild China studio there. Sort of, are you seeing similar things around the country as well? I think that's definitely going to be a, a next step. Yeah, I was in Zhejiang and Tonglu over the summer as well, where there is a similar project. Yeah, this kind of connection between art and architecture and sort of rural reconstruction and, and domestic tourism, I think should be a, an interesting you know direction for the next few years. I mean, somehow it starts to happen on the architectural level first, right? I'm sure you've been to a lot of these beautiful hotels designed by, you know, interesting young, often Chinese architects and the farther reaches of Yunnan or, or Sichuan or wherever it is, or this the Tangsha in, in, in Guizhou, for example. So, you know, that's just a function of a increasingly sophisticated and discerning public for this kind of stuff. Aranya is funny. It's a, where, where UCC Dune is located. I mean, this has basically become Beijing's backyard. You know, it's, it's almost, we joke, it's like the Hamptons of Beijing, right? It's uh, <laughs> It's it's a, it's a summer kind of vacation destination. And there is, there's been almost a backlash and then a backlash to the backlash of people. You know, I mean, I, the, the, the gentleman behind Aranya is a dear friend and, and classmate and a sort of business program I did here in China a few years ago, uh, Mayin. Uh, but he's, you know, he's someone he's very, actually, you mentioned Naoshima. I mean, he's very inspired by, by Naoshima and by, yeah, I think just contemporary Japanese aesthetics more generally and decided to take this. You know, this big plot of of land in, in Beidaiho that otherwise could have become just like any other, you know, real estate development and to actually instead focus it around minimalist architecture and kind of a, a very particular aesthetic. And, you know, it's kind of a place that, that people love to hate or hate to love, you know, and that it's, um, 
you know, it's got its architectural highlights. It's got a very serious theater festival. You know, we're there. You've got a lot of popular restaurateurs from Beijing opening, you know, locations there. Let's just say it takes a lot of effort to keep a place like that going and constantly innovating and growing. I mean, and they are, they are growing. Um, they've got a whole new part of it opening in, in the next year or two. Uh, but I, I, it's, you know, what's different from, say, like Marfa, Marfa is like an organic town in West Texas, right? Whereas this is instead, I, I think to do something like this, it's never, it's still not quite going to happen yeah. in an entirely organic way. It's still going to take some level of of top-down planning, um, which is which is fine. It's just, you know, that's mm-hmm. sort of the reality of the moment. Okay, so my two cents on uh, Arania Project in Beidaihe, I would highly recommend if anybody listening to this podcast, highly recommend it to go in the dead of winter because it's a summer sort of Hamptons location. In the summer, if you go, the, the crowds there, for me, that counter weight of the crowd took away the beauty of these architectural wonders for me. And in particular, there's this one library on the beach and it's called Gudu de Tushuguan. And it says it's a lonely library. And as I was walking by these pedestrians and they're like, <laughs> 孤独的傻呀, means, like, how can it be lonely? There are so many people. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that, that's one of the challenges. I think working in China is the sheer amount of population, right? It's easy to succeed in some unique volume, but at certain times, certain arts, you need the tranquility and the peace. And that, that's always a bit of a challenge as well. And I have my grief about these architectural hotels in these locations. They look <laughs> stunning on Instagram. And then you check in, you go like, oh my God, where's the service? <laughs> Coming from service industry. <laughs> but I think it's all part of the learning. And I think next step, I'm sure they're coming to you, Philip. Because many of these architectural structures, once it's built, what do they do with it? Art brings life to a location, I, I think. Okay. Impact of COVID. What do you think? What are the, what will come out of this in the modern art? Oh, wow. World? I mean, in art itself, uh, that's a, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I, you know, it's so it's so hard to think of it in any way other than your sort of day-to-day month to month. Right. And it's been this, you know, now more than two years, um, we closed for four months in 2020. Yeah. We had to realign and, you know, create a new show to open with. We're still working through our back program. I mean, this year we have uh, two or three shows happening that should have happened in 2020 and we're postponed. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, it's not a simple, it, you know, becomes a whole era in its own right. And then what will that mean for, for artistic production? I mean, in China, I, I'm very curious to see, honestly, you know, in the U S it's different in the U S you know, I think um, the combination of COVID and, you know, the, the 2020 election and the, the sort of racial and social justice movement, really brought a lot of new concerns to the fore in, in art, right? And so um, you see, you know, the primary concern these days is representation, um, identity, you know, how do we um, 
right past wrongs and and create opportunities for historically you know underprivileged or under under recognized positions and, and communities um, and, and you know that's on the institutional level that you know institutions I think are increasingly seeing themselves as community actors and as shapers of of spaces and conversations rather than you know as temples of of culture right so that's that's the kind of American slash Western mm -hmm. kind of conversation and, and direction. I think, I mean, some of that discourse is, has, you know, trickles into China. Um, and we, we do think about those things in, 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 in new ways. I mean, I, I tend to do a lot of that thinking on the level of the institution itself. You know, how do you make sure that things are equitable internally and, and well aligned and, and that you're, you know, treating your audiences and your artists and your other stakeholders in, in ways that that make sense um, and that are, are just and, and right. But I, you know, I guess it's also, if we think about just on a really basic level, how many Chinese tourists there were all over the world before COVID and the fact that that's completely stopped right now and probably, you know, will for, for even a few more years. Yeah. I, I do, start to think about what it means and we touched on this a little bit earlier but what it means for for people to kind of come of age um without the same level of exposure to global culture as as we had all become accustomed to i think if you've had it it's easy to kind of maintain it and you know sort of to remember what what was there and how you created in, in new ways but i think that some of the kinds of awakenings that that should happen to people at a, at a certain point in their young lives are, are just not going to happen in the same way. And so, yeah, I think that just sort of reinforces again, like our, our responsibility to be a place for different kinds of artistic and cultural, you know, experiences to, to happen and to unfold. And I think as long as we all remain conscious of that, I mean, we all, I mean, you know, people elsewhere in this, in this field um, and in the kind of cultural sector here more generally, I don't think it's impossible, but I, I do think it's, it's urgent and it requires like sustained attention and care. Very, very big topic. And I think it's very, it's very hard to think through, particularly now I went back to China after two years of COVID not being back. Many of the conversations I already saw firsthand to the, the gap mm -hmm. of lack of mutual understanding, right? Mm -hmm. The, which was not there yeah. before yeah. prior to COVID that was, you know, all these people are flying back and forth, back and forth. And um, this coming out of COVID, this this dialogue, I think art plays a huge role. I, I'm curious. Um, now, I have to ask this because I was very curious. Why Saudi Arabia? And I also just went to Saudi Arabia right before you did on a different front. And I was experiencing, honestly, a very similar kind of energy between China and Saudi Arabia, this sort of like can-do attitude, things right. are happening kind of yeah. energy that, that I felt curious about your impression, why Saudi Arabia and um, the differences you're feeling there, Saudi Arabia, China and the world. In a word that exactly, I mean, that's sort of, I started going in late 2019, so I made three trips just before the pandemic and then um, was was asked to, to curate this Biennale, which was, it was the first edition. It was happening in a, a 
cluster of converted warehouses that had not that, you know, when I visited them in 2019, were still functioning warehouses, you know, they're storing clothes and, <laughs> and, and when someone looks at you and says, yes, in these warehouses, which are now full of trucks and, you know, sleep napping workers and, you know, <laughs> the, the rest of it, if we're going to have an art exhibition here in two years, like, <laughs> I think if you having lived in China and worked in China for so long, I say, oh, okay, yeah, of course, yes, we are. Like, well, <laughs> not that it will definitely happen, but it, it could happen um, if everyone's, you know, on board with that. So I, I felt that similarity. I mean, I honestly felt like, and this was sort of the premise of the Biennale in a way, that Saudi Arabia right now, I didn't experience the 80s in China, but I, I it, it reminds me of, you know, all the study and reading I've done of that period um, in that, you know, this is a country that after really 40 years of being very much on a, on a kind of cultural and social level subject to, you know, Islamic orthodoxy, you, despite all the complexities and all the ambiguities um, on the on the level of kind of people's daily lives and what's possible to them and what 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 the society can offer, you know, is opening up in this drastic way. I, I, was, I remember being invited to Saudi Arabia in 2015. The process of getting a visa then was just so cumbersome. And even between my, my trips in 2019, the first trip re required this whole kind of embassy thing. By the second trip, they'd opened, you know, online visas, e-visas for tourism. And it was a sort of, you know, 15 minute process on, uh, on your web browser. Um, so, you know, that kind of openness is something that just like had not been there before. And it's very disorienting for various generations of people there. I mean, there's just suddenly this generation gap between kind of people in their 30s and people in their 20s, because the people in their 30s kind of spent their 20s either out of the country or kind of in this extremely, you know, kind of conservative situation. So the title of the Biennale was Feeling the Stones, which of course comes from the, you know, reform era Chinese slogan of crossing the river by feeling the stones, you know, which was a way of talking about economic reform, social reform and change. Right. But it, it just also felt to me very poetic and very much in line with kind of how artists work, you know, constantly like moving forward step by step, um, maybe moving back, maybe moving sideways, but um, experimenting and iterating and, and just kind of crossing, you know, from one side to the other. Um, so this exhibition was a way to bring together, you know, I mean, the real stars were, there were 26 Saudi artists, um, including really like, and, and this is kind of also, I think similar to China, you have this unbelievable, you know, talent base of just like incredible artists, which not every country can say, to be completely honest, so that, that, that's very reassuring. I mean, that this is all happening and there are the artists there to back up all these opportunities that are coming their ways, but also to then try and put them in dialogue, you know, with, with artists from China, I had 12 artists from China in the show with kind of major, you know, Euro American artists with artists from completely other parts of the world with artists from the past. Um, and to do it in a way that, you know, that, that made a, a compelling art experience for viewers. This show was open. It just closed yesterday. Actually, it was open for three months, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, completely free. You know, you just had to go online and make a little reservation and get a QR code and you're going to come. So I, I was very conscious of the fact that this was going to be the first like contemporary art experience that a lot of people were having. And that if they liked it, they might realize that art is not just paintings and sculptures. Art is a place to talk about, you know, the big questions that face us in our in our societies, in our families, in our lives. 
Yeah. And then just as you were saying, I mean, having, I think we went to a lot of the same places just to see the transformation, the speed, the, you know, the, the ways people relate to the society. I mean, again, it's like, it's not a democracy, but in this world we now find ourselves in, that's a, that's a huge question is like, what does it mean to have art and culture in a non-democratic place? You know, I mean, and it's not as simple. I think before we, including in China, kind of always thought that things were leading in one direction. And now we realize that they're not, but we're still all human and people still express themselves. And there are still, you know, places for that expression to go, even if they're not ideal and open, according to our precepts about how art and institutions should work. You know, for me, it always comes back to just the ordinary folks whose fault it isn't, you know, that things are, are the way they are, but who I, I believe are still deserving of a chance to, you know, ask and answer questions through this encounter with, with art. And that's sort of what, what I think it's a point of convergence between, you know, what we did in Saudi and what we continue to do um, in Beijing and Shanghai, you know, elsewhere in China. Uh, but it's also, I think, you know, for me, like, a, I guess, a larger question and, and, and purpose. Now that you've taken me there, I have to ask, how do you find the balance there between artistic expression and, and, and the range of freedom in, in China? What I will say is that there still exists a space between things that the government actively does and espouses and things that the government sort of allows to happen passively, right? So the, the whole idea that you can have private art museums speaks to that. I mean, and I think that that comes out of this notion that I'm not sure lots of local governments around China want to be in the business of selecting and presenting contemporary art. Um, but when you talk to people at different levels of government and, you know, society, you always hear this interest and excitement and commitment to, to art and to culture. And so I think this kind of like private museum has arisen as a sort of compromise, right? It's like, well, and, and it's becoming more and more, you know, we, we tend to hear, especially, you know, I read the American papers as well. And it's true that things have become tighter. It's also true that the systems that we work within um, have matured. So a few years ago, we could never do a show of say Picasso or Warhol because the idea that you as a private company essentially in their eyes are importing very expensive works of art and that you're not going to sell them would have been kind of unthinkable to customs, right? But, but now there's, there are legal frameworks and relationships still, but you know, there are ways that you can, you can bring world-class art into China temporarily for exhibition purposes, you know, without being subject to completely ridiculous, you know, for example, duties in the, in the previous, like when I first started this job, had you tried to do a show like that, you would have needed to place a deposit with customs for something like 30% of the value of the work. Well, when you're doing a show and you're bringing in $800 million of art, that doesn't work. You know, none of us are liquid at that level. Um, But, 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 you know, people want these things to happen. And so they, and, and so now they start to, so I, I, you know, of course it's, it's complex. And of course there are moments where, you know, you, you compromise and you, you know, you accept the reality of the fact that you're, that this is the system you're working in. And, and for me, again, it always comes back to the fact that, you know, you're always asking this question of like, is what's going to happen better than, 
what wouldn't have happened otherwise, even if it's not the ideal thing that you were hoping for at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping a forward momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I could go on. This is absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I know our listeners will want some practical takeaways to further their understanding of our contemporary Chinese art in both current exhibits or upcoming exhibits at UCCA or other institutions that you would recommend and any book recommendations, which is always a popular thing. The hot show in Shanghai last week is Nara Yoshitomo, the, the, you know, the Japanese painter of kind of pouting little girls and such at the, at the used museum. Um, no, I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of exhibition schedules are in flux right now because of COVID and because of the war in Russia and Ukraine. Um, but um, books, those are, <laughs> those are easier. Um, no, honestly, I, I don't mean to be um, like self-promoting or something, but I do feel like the, the book that we made for the Guggenheim show called Art in China After 1989 Theater of the World, the, the, the catalog, which I think is still readily available, you know, on Amazon and elsewhere. Okay. You know, of course I'm partial, but I believe it offers a very good overview in English of a key period, which is, you know, the, the 90s and the 2000s and how, you know, there, there, there are some essays at the beginning by the three of us who curated the show, but there are also texts by a whole range of scholars about the specific works. And we, we, we put a lot of attention into just writing really well-researched little articles, and they're short, explaining each of these different artworks from, a, from an aesthetic perspective, but also from a social and a, a historical perspective. So I, 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 feel, I feel like if, if your question is like a book that you might want to look at if you were hoping to learn more about contemporary Chinese art, that, that's the one that for now I would... I would recommend. Oh, sounds terrific. We will provide a link to, to that book in the notes to this podcast. And to learn anything further from uh, Philip, follow, you're active on Instagram and, and also UCCA has an Instagram account. Well, thank you, Philip. It's been very enjoyable. I, I, I learned a lot and thanks for taking the time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.